welcome to the Meaning of Home podcast, where we discuss the complexities and connections between home and homelessness. I'm your host, Sarah Christou, and as always, with me is the podcast's producer, Dave Angel. We are doctoral researchers at Loughborough University, part of the Harnessing Opportunities for Meaningful Environments Centre for Doctoral Training, for short, the Home CDT. We are a cohort of seven PhD projects approaching concepts of home and homelessness through a creative lens to develop impactful new research. Every month we'll bring a new episode with a range of guests to provide commentary and conversation on different themes. In this episode, our theme is choice, where we'll be discussing the need for a variety of housing options and types of support for people experiencing homelessness. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Louisa Steele from Standing Together, Ailey Stringer from Action Homelessness, and Jen Kiernan from Centre for Homelessness Impact. Louisa has worked across women's specialist services and the homelessness sector in England for over a decade in both frontline and strategic roles. She has used this cross-sector knowledge in her current role as Housing First and Homelessness Project Manager at Standing Together Against Domestic Abuse, where she leads on an innovative Housing First partnership for women and works to improve services and systems for survivors of abuse experiencing multiple disadvantage. Ailey is the Funding and Communications Manager at Leicestershire-based charity Action Homeless. Having worked in the homelessness sector for over 10 years, Ailey has been involved in the delivery of a range of initiatives, including a housing first pilot and specialist support for young children affected by homelessness. In 2021, she completed a secondment with Leicester's Homelessness Charter, securing funding to continue its collaborative efforts in preventing and responding to homelessness. Jen is the community organiser at Centre for Homelessness Impact, which exists to improve the lives of people experiencing homelessness through better use of data and evidence. She has been confronting and responding to different forms of adversity throughout her life, sometimes as part of her roles in the third sector, but also outside of work in her own life. Jen has learnt that adverse experiences rarely occur once, while her current role focuses on homelessness, she uses an understanding of other issues, particularly mental health and relationships, to guide her thinking and decision making. Welcome, Louisa, Ailey and Jen to the Meaning of Home podcast. So we're discussing choice as a variety of housing options are necessary, but there are different people experiencing a range of homelessness requiring different levels of support. Flexibility is therefore crucial. Providing people with choice, depending on the particular situation they're facing at that point in their lives. Ailey, can you tell us more about how people experience different types of homelessness? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as you say, we, you, you see lots of people come into us for support at Action Homeless um, in in many different situations, really. And perhaps when we talk about types of homelessness that the one that will probably spring to mind for everybody and for listeners is the more visible types of homelessness so people who are um sleeping rough and um, but really this is the sort of bit of a tip of the iceberg um because we see people also people come into us who 
haven't had an experience of sleeping rough but um are are homeless um it might be that they've been staying with family and friends sometimes referred to as safer surfing um or they've they've had to leave their home they're, they're in temporary accommodation they're in a refuge so there's there's lots of different situations people can be in that you know we you would still be, they would still be classed as being homeless um and and also i guess there's times when people feel homeless as well so they might be housed um in some kind of temporary or even permanent accommodation but it it doesn't feel like home um for that person or it might not be a place of safety and again um that you know they would be potentially classed as homeless so around the kind of legal definition i suppose of homelessness there is there's lots of variation within that so there's a difference then, of course, between being sheltered and feeling at home. Mm. Um, Louisa, if I could pull you in on, on that point, does that lend itself to the idea that there's an importance on personalisation, on having support that focuses on individual needs rather than a one size fits all? homeless people homeless women are going to need a range of different types of support to enable home to feel like home um really um and that's going to vary depending on the level of need um, what they've experienced in, in westminster we're partners in a housing first project for women experiencing violence against women and girls who have experienced long-term homelessness um, and are affected by multiple disadvantage uh, this group of women obviously need a roof over their head. They need their own flats, their independent tenancy, but they need very intensive support uh, to be able to help them to maintain that tenancy, address any issues around substance misuse, mental health, domestic abuse and other forms of violence against women and girls. So it really it really depends. There is no one size fits all approach. It, it has to be tailored for the person um, and kind of for their experiences, really. And Jen, if um, if I could bring you in on the discussion there, there, obviously with there being different types of experiences of homelessness, because there are kind of as many different types of people that there are who have a range of different issues that require support. However, housing and stable housing is always going to be integral to providing a foundation for people and for that support. But what are the main issues that people face in accessing stable housing? I think um, it's a combination, really, of personal issues and structural issues. It's very rarely one or the other. So, uh, for example, for personal issues, someone might have experienced a lot of trauma. They might have had relationship breakdown in their lives or uh, they might have been a victim of violence. Uh, they might have some mental health issues, perhaps arising from some past trauma or perhaps um, more organically arising. Then you've got the, the structural issues whereby it's very, very difficult if benefits are your only income to afford most of the housing options that are available. And even if you are entitled to, you know, housing related benefits, if that means that your income is stretched, there's always going to be scope for a lot of things to go wrong. And you're in a very precarious situation where 
you know, you might be just about making ends meet for now, but if something goes wrong, an appliance breaks, as a, you know, an emergency that you didn't foresee, uh, suddenly your budget becomes overstretched and then things can start to go wrong in terms of, you know, your accommodation. Also, we, you know, people in those situations are reliant on benefits being reliably paid, which isn't always the case, unfortunately. So that can uh, lead to housing related issues or if if there are delays, for example. And often it is a combination of things. For example, if somebody has difficulties in their life in general, whether that's through mental health, learning disabilities, trauma, exploitation, health issues, whatever that is, if then something goes wrong, it can be very difficult to cope with that, to deal with it in the most logical fashion and to deal with it in a way that resolves the issue before it sort of spirals out of control. So it's it's often a combination of factors, I think. And I think that speaks to this suggestion that we see this rhetoric around homelessness as simply due to personal behaviour or choices, which focuses the cause of homelessness on individual action as something that needs to be managed. But this behaviour change tactic and individualisation of responsibility is not new as framing the individual um, as responsible for their homelessness politicises that self and problematises poverty and distracts attention away from, uh, as you mentioned, some of those systemic structural inequalities which lead to multiple causes of homelessness. And so the experience of homelessness is based on identifiable social and structural factors which are predominantly beyond the control of those affected by homelessness. And, of course, the probability of becoming homeless is also weighted towards those who are already disadvantaged. So housing and poverty are first and foremost those main issues for homelessness. Ailey, taking that into consideration, are we seeing an increase of people losing their homes due to a lack of social housing and an increase in poverty and the cost of living crisis and knock-on effects from the last two years as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's been it's been a difficult um, few years, hasn't it? And there's been lots of big things, the pandemic, you know, the economic situation that we're in that certainly has not helped. Um, but this, you know, it's not a new problem. So the problem with, you know, the lack of affordable housing and stuff, just it predates the pandemic and the current cost of living crisis and some of the systemic failures really that that we've discussed already um but it did but it certainly has put that extra pressure and i think as jen said you know people that might have just about been you know managing perhaps you know right on the edge unfortunately the situation that we now means that they've kind of been tipped over the precipice really um, and the you know the severe impact that the pandemic the cost of living crisis is having on people's mental health um you know it all just exacerbates um, the issues that that people face, it makes life more difficult, um, and it, and it makes um, you know the situations that people are, are in more difficult to escape from. I think, and you know, we're we're seeing lots of people that have got multiple needs come into us, um, and you know, we're having to support people for a lot longer, um, and things that are out of our control, the lack of kind of affordable housing to to move people onto means that people are kind of stuck in situations in temporary accommodation for much longer than we would 
we would want them to be um and yeah all, all the factors around that and and the cost of living crisis is is adding to that pressure um on services as well and that reminds me of some new research that's come out from crisis led by Harriet Watt University, where they predict that 300,000 households across Britain could face homelessness this year, whereas there are predictable routes into homelessness which can be prevented, as well as measures that could make homelessness rare. So whereas more housing is also necessary, as you mentioned there about temporary accommodation, that should be for emergencies only. But of course, we're seeing extended use of that as, as there's an increase in the number of people facing homelessness. So a housing-led approach gives people a chance for safe and stable living. And this means more social housing alongside greater protection for those at risk of falling into homelessness, those renting and in precarious housing situations. Jen, could you talk more about why it's important then to provide a range of accommodation options? Yeah, I think this is a really important aspect of temporary accommodation. In my past job, I worked quite a lot with people who were um, experiencing rough sleeping as a form of homelessness. Uh, most of those people were single adults who had basically been told that it's this hostel or nothing at all. You know, you take this space that we're allocating to you, regardless of what might happen in that environment, um, you know, regardless of your past history, you take that space and that's it. And if you leave that space or you reject that space, then you're making yourself intentionally homeless and there won't be any other help for you. And that's happened to a lot of people at different stages in their experience of homelessness. And this is like massively damaging uh, because many people in hostels experience bullying. They experience assault, both well, physical, mental and sexual assault, they experience exploitation, they're affected by other people's substance misuse, as well as the stigma of being in a place that may be viewed quite negatively by the community that surrounds that place. So some people do choose the streets over that, or they do choose a form of rural homelessness over that, or they do choose an unsafe sofa-serving arrangement over that, because we, we use the term sofa-serving and it sounds a little bit woolly, a little bit nice, but often it's the arrangements that occur in reality are not nice. We have things like sex for rent, for example, and that affects men as well um, as women. And often we end up with situations where there is an element of modern slavery when that happens. So it's really vital that there are a range of temporary accommodation solutions, that there are quality um, solutions available for, for example, people who've got children, people who've got past experience of trauma, people of different ages, different ethnicities, different genders, different sexualities and dis disabilities as well. Because one of the things that's often overlooked in the homeless community is that actually a lot of people with disabilities experience homelessness and are then offered accommodation which isn't adapted for their needs. So it's not actually possible for them to live in that accommodation and maintain their health at the same time. So, you know, this puts someone between a rock and a hard place in that they don't want to reject the only thing they've been offered and risk not being offered anything at all. But at the same time, if they can't live there in a way that is healthy for them, that is sustainable, then how can that feel like even a temporary solution? So, you know, 
I think we, we have to start treating people as individuals if we're really going to help people first into temporary accommodation and then into more permanent accommodation. And Louisa, you also lead on an innovative Housing First partnership for women. Could you tell us more about what Housing First is, uh, as we may have some listeners that aren't familiar with it, and and who does it support? We are partners on our um, Housing First project in Westminster in London, um, which supports women experiencing any form of violence against women and girls and and long-term homelessness. So we're really talking about women here who occupy the sharp end of homelessness, experiences of violence and abuse, substance misuse, mental health, involvement with the criminal justice system. So uh, women with very high needs and who have been homeless for multiple periods of time and long periods of time. And that can involve rough sleeping, uh, multiple stays in um, temporary accommodation or supported accommodation, sofa surfing um, in kind of, yeah, debts for rent, informal, unsafe housing situations for a long period of time. Um, so that project um, and the focus of that project um, is that for this group, going into a temporary accommodation and then working their way up doesn't work. They're not able to do that. So we work to give these women a tenancy, their own independent tenancy in their name. And they are provided with really intensive support um, to help them maintain that tenancy. So unlike some models where you know, a tenancy sustainment worker would have 20 clients on their caseload, on the Westminster Violence Against Women and Girls Housing First project, each worker just supports five women. Um, that reflects the complexity uh, of, of their needs and the amount of time that's needed to be able to support them to settle into that tenancy um, and then address. We find that once people are settled, uh, they start to think about the other aspects of their life and maybe think about engaging with a drug service or um, doing some kind of meaningful activity or engaging with their health a bit better. So it's an approach that um, is is wide, used widely across Europe, Canada, the US, Housing First. But I think in Westminster, we've really thought about adapting it for, for the needs of women. Um, and as I said, because women are statistically more likely to experience violence and abuse and that be part of their homeless experience, our service is very much tailored around that. And the support is provided by a women's specialist provider, Solace Women's Aid, uh, and the housing offered by a coalition of friendly uh, housing associations and providers. So it's something we're very proud of. And it's in its third year. Actually, it's just gone into its fourth. Good to hear that it's going strong and hopefully will grow as well. And just continuing on the the work of the idea of Housing First, Ailey, you've also been involved in the delivery of a Housing First pilot in, in Leicester. Can you tell us what differences that's made to uh, your service users and maybe the change you've seen that's come about with Action Homeless? Yeah, so so our Housing First project supports both men and women, um, and it was it's the first of its kind really locally. And the key 
you know, so there were some challenges at first getting the right sort of staff um, involved in the project because, um, as Louisa described, it is very intensive support that is offered. So it was really important for us to get the right people um, providing that um, and just the amount of time that they're able to dedicate to each individual. So they're supporting sort of five or six people at, at any given time. Um, is I think what makes the real difference and, and the flexibility as well of how that support's delivered. So, you know, rather than a support worker who might be available sort of nine to five and uh, in a particular location, um, our housing first workers are kind of out and about where they're needed to be um, and at, at all different times of the day so that they can be there to, to support when needed. Um, we've seen really positive impact actually and um, people who have kind of chronic experiences, long-term street homeless histories have managed to, for the first time in a very long time, maintain a tenancy. And um, so we're in we're only in year two of the project. And um, so it all still feels almost quite new. Um, but we've we've seen people sustaining tenancies. Um, and, and just the fact, you know, we have had people kind of drop out and, and pick back up again um, and just the flexibility of being able to still be that that same person who can go and approach somebody when we know they've kind of gone back to rough sleeping um, and bring them back in. And just that consistency of someone being there and, and checking in on people and just just being at the end of the phone whenever needed has been the difference. So yeah, we, we've seen people engaging better with local health services as well. And um, typically a lot of our sort of housing first beneficiaries have got quite poor mental health. Um, so we have seen better uptake in terms of appointments and things like that with mental health professionals. Also um, addressing substance misuse issues as well. So all the different kind of needs that are out there and um, just having that one central person providing the support who can help to kind of navigate, encourage and, and be there helping to, to manage and organise all of that um, has been the, the key to success really. back to the idea of choice. Choice matters because housing provides a sense of control and independence and we see this uh, with housing first because that sense of control helps create a safe environment in which recovery can begin and the stability of housing then alleviates the need to always be focusing on survival only. Jen, at the Centre for Homelessness Impact, there is a focus on better use of data and evidence. Uh, could you tell us more perhaps then what, what the data points to, what evidence there is that choice in housing is important for long-term ending of homelessness? That's a really good uh, question, Sarah. Um, unfortunately, the answer is that there isn't enough data to give a definitive answer to this at the moment. And this goes back historically to the fact that, generally speaking, we haven't been very good at collecting data on different interventions around homelessness. Uh, the homelessness system for many years has focused on kind of mopping up and mitigating the worst effects of homelessness. And with the view that any intervention is sort of a good intervention rather than actually collecting robust data on interventions so that they can be measured against each other. We are 
seeing some promising data on housing first but as you all know it's a relatively new phenomenon in this sense um so the jury is still out on that one but we are very much encouraging people to start to collect more data on all the interventions they run whether that is a housing first intervention um, a supported accommodation intervention a wraparound support intervention and one of the things that we do as a center a lot is to work with organizations to help them get in touch with the evidence that is present within their service or their area so we work with local authorities on this as well because often it is about seeing what the local picture is collecting that data as you go along and making a decision that is not only backed up by broad evidence but evidence that comes from your place because everyone who works in frontline services whether that's in a local authority context or in a service delivery context is seeing evidence every single day it's about collecting this and using it to inform decision making and there won't always be one answer for every place we've talked about individuals needing different solutions and different places will probably need their own pattern of solutions as we kind of move forward with this issue and I think, Jen, you've reminded me there of the point that, you know, here we are talking about housing options for people experiencing homelessness. But of course, that's that's almost at a point where it's too late. If we're thinking about prevented preventing homelessness in the first place, can support with housing help to prevent homelessness? And what do we need to see kind of further up? before people actually fall into a situation where they then need kind of these different types of support further down the line. That's very true. It's not one problem, um, is it homelessness? It's not something that occurs in isolation. It's something that comes about as a result of a lot of other factors. We need infrastructure in communities around problem solving, essentially. So that, you know, debt advice is a very important aspect of that because debt is a huge factor to contributing to homelessness. We also need good mental health support in place so that somebody, you know, if they're going through a difficult mental health episode, gets the support they need so that other things in their life don't spiral out of control. We need to have youth work services in place to help young people who might be vulnerable to experiencing homelessness if they haven't got support in place. So there's a whole kind of structure of support that we need in society because people won't all present in exactly the same place. So if there's a number of different options, there's more chance that somebody will get to somewhere where they can get the help that they need before it becomes too late. So there's a big sort of need to kind of rethink the way that we do communities and not only is support there but is it accessible do people know about it is it appropriate for people who speak all languages can people with learning disabilities access it you know so it's, there's a lot of it's a very holistic issue and it's about how we how we look at communities and what we consider a community to be and how we use the spaces that are becoming available in our communities when perhaps businesses are closing you know to perhaps think about advice functions and think about the needs of the community because we have a huge opportunity in the world as it is in our country as it is to really rethink what community should look like and getting the support that people need to the places where they can find it and i think there of course we've we've been speaking before about the need for kind of this to address individuals experiences of homelessness requires kind of a 
a personal approach as well on what their needs are. But of course, part of feeling at home is having that connection to community as well as you're raising there. And Louisa, I see you nodding along. So is there something you'd like to add on that point or build on uh, what Jen was talking about there? Yeah, actually, you've got me at a time where I'm um, I'm literally writing up, we were talking about the need for data, I'm writing up the third year evaluation learning report um, from the Westminster Hall Housing First Projects at the moment. And one of the key, those outcomes of Housing First is that social integration, is that kind of community uh, integration. And I suppose the hope is that people who have for a very long time felt and been very ostracised uh, from their communities can integrate within, be part of that once again. It's been most elusive, in my opinion, of all of the housing first outcomes, because it's just so hard to do. Thinking about what that looks like in, in so many different ways, you know, is it kind of getting to know neighbours? Is it involving meaningful activity in kind of community groups? Is it engaging with local gardening projects? I don't know. It's it's it, it's a really slippery concept, really, um, around how you do that, particularly with people who are at the housing first level who, you know, who have had a lot of problems um, and um it's it's going to be harder yeah it just it just made me made me reflect on that communities are so important for tackling homelessness i think that sense of what they are and and also how how alienated because i think some of the feedback we've had from the women is just how they don't feel like members of society I used to work with the women in Housing First who we used to talk about doing groups and stuff. And she used to say, oh, I don't I don't want to do groups with our homeless people. I want to do groups with, you know, normal people. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a difficult one. It's, community is so key. It's so key for some of these foundational things which lead people into, into homelessness. And Ailey, how has Action Homelessness tried to address that idea of community building that both Louisa and Jen have been talking about? Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen very similar um, examples, and actually, when you know people almost feel like, or services feel like, someone's at the end of their journey. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but when somebody is in finally in a kind of permanent home, actually, that's when the if there's not a sense of connectedness with the community that they're now living in, things can really start to unravel quite quickly. And and we've seen lots of examples of people with sort of really declining mental health when they've they've made that transition into a permanent home, into a tenancy. And um, and and within sort of within the city of Leicester, you know, there's so many different communities and different neighbourhoods and and just moving someone, you know, to a slightly different area, you know, where they don't have much connection, they don't know people. Um, it's, it's really, really difficult for them to expect that person to just kind of integrate themselves. And it's and it's funny hearing Louisa kind of talking about, you know, how do you measure that? Because we've had similar issues, you know, how many times are they going to the library or or things like that? And and actually that is just, you know, so, so difficult and kind of so far away from 
what some people want to be doing or you know feel that they they should be doing just feel completely like they don't belong um, and and that's the toughest bit I think you know the getting people into a home is one thing but ha- you know being able to foster that sense of being a member of society um is really difficult and I think it, it goes back to the the topic of choice really and 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 the realistic nature of homelessness and and rehousing people means that we're always walking this line between trying to give people choice but actually in reality there often isn't much choice at all in terms of where people can uh, are living and and what type of property they're living in you know people get punished by the system for not accepting you know properties that they're offered and things like that so it's it's then very difficult to say to that person okay well that's it now you've you've got somewhere to live um so so we have looked at different approaches in terms of trying to establish peer networks um and things but but the other thing is that people often if they don't consider themselves to be homeless anymore they don't particularly want to go back to that and have to share all those experiences with other people and kind of be part of the homeless community as it were so it's a it's a really tough one and certainly don't have the answers as to as to how we can make that better but agree with everybody else that it is it's key it's, it's definitely key and perhaps taking that last point though of how we do make things better when we're thinking about choice as connected to autonomy then what improvements could we see what changes would better support people experiencing homelessness to have more choice i think firstly the the recognition that everybody is an individual and everybody's come from a different place under a different set of circumstances and i still think there is there's the kind of um will for there to be a kind of one size fits all pathway of some kind that everybody has to to go through and kind of comes out the other end in a better place and and that's just not the reality um so recognizing that some people are going to need a much higher level of support and for some people um being kind of in shared accommodation or where there is a level of security safety and support is is what people would choose but yeah, also just I think just recognition more widely that personal a personalised approach is the right approach would be a good start. And Jen, I can see you uh, you wanted to come in on that idea of how we can better support people experiencing homelessness. Yeah, I, one of the aspects of um, my role is that I'm very privileged to speak with a lot of groups of people who all have personal experience of homelessness and to be in conversations in some of those groups. And actually, one of the conclusions that we've often arrived at in those sorts of conversations is that actually there needs to be much more open mindedness about what homes look like. Um, so. Um, that has included, for example, one person who was formerly homeless talking about living on a boat. And if that's the right solution for him, then society perhaps should be able to support that. Sometimes people prefer to be more mobile in what they call home. So and the system doesn't really allow for this at present. So I guess it is like looking at how we can be a little bit more flexible and not pushing our own kind of preconceived ideas of what a home should be because 
a lot of that will be from our own social conditioning, what we have grown up with. And many people think, oh, it must be so awful not to have a home that, you know, having that that roof over your head, the key to your own front door must be the most important thing. Um, but actually, it's not the most important thing for everybody, that everyone has their own preferences, their own lifestyle choices. And actually being open minded about that, I think, can really help us help us find the solutions that are right for people. So we have to be willing to kind of broaden our parameters a bit when we think about home. Uh, absolutely, Jen. And, and that is key to the understanding that home is a multi-dimensional concept and that homemaking can occur in different spaces for different people. We end every episode of the podcast with a recurring segment where I ask each guest the same question. What does home mean to you? Jen, what does home mean to you? I, I something that I've um, thought about quite a lot in life, actually. And I think the best way to summarise is to say that for me, home is a place of safety. It's a place of privacy and it's a place of peace. It's a place that you can retreat to to get away from the outside world and it's where you can plan your next engagement with that wider world as well so you get to choose when you make that engagement you get to choose how you present yourself to the world so you can't separate having a home from having choices because if you don't have a home then those are the kind of very basic choices that you don't have so for me having a home is all about having choices thank you jen and for connecting it, of course, to the theme of choices. And Ailey, if I can come to you, what does home mean to you? Um, I think home for me is is a sanctuary. It's it's somewhere and it's a bit of a constant as well. And, and even if you kind of move home, the sort of sense of having security somewhere to go back to that's safe um, is, is a kind of constant sense of calm really it's you know it's always somewhere that you can retreat to I guess um so yeah I think I think the key word for me would be sanctuary thank you Ailey and finally Louisa what does home mean to you um um means uh safety um to me home for me is somewhere I can be my best and worst self with I suppose the people that I love really simple but true for so many people thank you all that brings us to the end of this episode we would like to thank our guests Louisa Steele, Ailey Stringer and Jen Kiernan for joining us and sharing their thoughts for more information about our work please visit meaningofhome.uk follow us on twitter at meaning of home lu remember to follow and share our podcast and of course thank you all for listening to the meaning of home this podcast was created by the home cdt it was hosted by sarah christu produced and edited by dave angel and the music is by the angel brothers 
All ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the individual. The meaning of home is brought to you by doctoral researchers at Loughborough University.